0: Hello, and welcome to this download from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Stefan Merrill-Block. In his debut novel, The Book of Forgetting, Stefan looked to his own family history, a genetic history of early-onset Alzheimer's disease. At one point in the book, one of its two narrators, 15-year-old Seth, is investigating the disease's history. He recounts an anecdote from Dr. Alzheimer himself, who had a female patient come to him and say, I have lost myself i put it to stefan that this provided a very good way of thinking about his book in which all the characters seem to be in the process of losing or trying to recover themselves
1: absolutely yeah that quote actually was something i thought about as i was as i was writing i mean seth's mother when she has a fall near the beginning of the book says something very similar to that and actually in i think in an earlier draft said precisely that right. it seemed like such you know like such a, Wonderfully poignant expression of of what it means to have Alzheimer's because that's really what it is You know, it's it's a stripping away of your selfhood the way that the disease That's the first thing that you lose really, you know Your memories and your ability to reason your ability to create narratives of your life And so you know you lose yourself, but even though you can still speak and you can still Have some form of reasoning your selfhood is really like the kind of the first
0: thing to go I've read things that you've written elsewhere about your own family history, and I wondered if writing this how you how you felt about writing this book did you hesitate before you launched into a narrative which has got a, a sort of strong theme about alzheimer's, or did you did you kind of em- embrace the theme wholeheartedly?
1: I guess I hesitated you know I'm always writing, so I had written hundreds and hundreds of pages about things that weren't Alzheimer's and about things that weren't characters. Very much based on myself or characters that so entirely came from myself, I suppose. At some point, I think it all felt sort of false. And then, I, and in a lot of ways, I think that this book is a sort of elegy to my childhood. It, I, it's the book I had to write in order to kind of become an adult writer. It, it's full of all the things that I, you know, hoped for and feared as a child. So, right, discussing Alzheimer's because it was such an, a prevalent thing in my childhood and such a burden of my childhood was. I mean, essential to the project. I think. I, I think I had to I just just as I had to write about Texas, and I had to write about you know being a pimply fifteen-year-old and fears of isolation. All the all the things that I thought about and you know at, when I was a kid are in there. So, so at yeah. some point it became inevitable that I would write about it.
0: Tell me how Seth took shape because he's the pimply fifteen-year-old. He's a, a bit of a, a geek. He's kind of trying to, to make sense of the world, and also he's got this terrible. Family curse hanging over him. He's trying to make sense of of what's happening to his mother as she slowly degenerates. So how did how did Seth take shape?
1: Seth actually was the last character to take shape. It's kind of an interesting thing, you know. They always tell young writers to uh, write what you know. And according, to, I mean, Seth Seth is what I know. He's he's his biography is very very closely mirrors mine. I always say actually it's it's almost autobiographical. But there's a scene in which Seth stands naked before a mirror and is critical of his anatomy which is in no way autobiographical <laughs> but it's interesting to because I'm, I feel like I'm most critical of Seth Able, I I'm I'm more able to love him or to um, to accept him I guess Seth because it's so close to myself I'm very critical of the character and of I mean but I I think if there's if he feels real maybe that's why because he he does things that he contradicts himself and he's uh, complicated and confused person. I mean, like I was, and like I, I suppose I still am in ways. So it's it's an interesting thing to write someone that's so autobiographical and then put it into this sort of fictional milieu where no one else is, uh, you know, as deeply autobiographical in the story. So. So it's very much, the, and the voice is very much how I imagine myself talking at 15, whether or not that's actually how I spoke, but that's how I imagine myself.
0: And part of his confusion, you talked about his confusion, part of the way he's trying to work out his confusion is by conducting what he sees as a very scientific investigation of early onset Alzheimer's, but in fact... It turns out to be a much more kind of free-form series of encounters that he has with people who are farther down the the, the sort of road towards degeneration generation than, than his mother. And one of the things I really liked about the book was was those encounters that you place at various points in the narrative. I wonder if you could say a little bit about Mr Hamner, who tells a story about the artist de Kooning, because that, that seemed to me to open up some of the sort of creative things you've said or some of the th- some things you've said about ways in which alzheimer's has a sort of liberating freeing side to it in terms of you know retreating from you know all the pressures of 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 restored memory
1: yeah absolutely the de Kooning story was a really important one and actually there's another one about frederick Olmsted, who a uh, very similar story but the, the story with de Kooning is that you know he was this he was a brilliant painter, a brilliant artist, and in in his youth, in the fifties and sixties, he was really transforming American art, and mostly through abstractions. And as as the decades went along, an art, sort of the the what was happening in Amer- in American art changed, and it became more interested in, I mean, less interested in abstraction, more interested in pop culture and incorporating. Mass manufacturing into into art and all the things. So, and he tried to, uh, can you try to kind of bring that into his own work? I think to make himself feel contemporary. Though from his work from that period, to me at least, always feels very contrived. And then he went through decades of this, and his, his reputation had really waned, and he was seen as, you know, sort of like this decent modernist who had tried to adapt to other people's art and had failed or whatever. And in the last years of his life, he developed Alzheimer's disease, and he thought that all of all of his best work was behind him. Certainly, because you know, the art that he was producing at that time was deeply dependent on um, on his observations and on like insight and on consciousness. But it turns out, as as he descended further into Alzheimer's disease, he kind of forgot all of the things that he was trying to do to make himself contemporary, and returned back to to like the that first need to to express himself visually. So he would he, he his art became more and more abstract as he went further into the disease until eventually he you know he was really reinventing what he was doing and the canvases are absolutely beautiful from this period. And this is this is a great story where he would wake up every day and he would I mean, he was fortunate enough to have the money and to have the support to be able to stand in front of a canvas and paint something. And then the next day, he would return to that canvas he had been at all day the day before, and he would have no idea that he had painted it, but he would stand in awe of its beauty. Uh, There's something like so profoundly moving about that. To him, it's the perfect painting, and he has no idea that he's produced it. It's, it's what I always wish for, because I think as an author, I mean, I, my goal is to write my perfect book, the book that I wish, uh, that I would most want to read, you know? But then the burden of it is, well, I'll never be able to really be able to read it because I am the writer of it, you know. But I guess it's, that's not something I could ever hope for as a uh, as a writer because, you know, even if I developed Alzheimer's disease, then I wouldn't have the ability to understand the writing in the same way. But as a visual artist, you can do it. Same with Almstead. Olmsted, uh, was he designed Central Park and uh, many parks and parks in England and he, one of his big his big landscape projects was the grounds of this mental hospital in Boston called McLean Hospital, and Olmsted had suffered from psychiatric problems his whole life, but developed Alzheimer's disease in his late years, and you know he's, he this genius who had totally reinvented I mean all, all landscape art really comes from Olmsted I mean he's like you know it's like the like the text of, of you know, landscape design, but so they so he when he had Alzheimer's in his later years. His fa- he became a burden to his family and he needed full-time care and of course the place to put him at the time was McLean Hospital so they put him on the, the grounds of the hospital and there's these wonderful stories from the nurses who would say that they would find Olmstead just wandering around the gardens he had designed like in awe of their beauty and having no idea that he had designed it
0: so. We talked about Seth whose mother is gradually losing her past and the other narrator is Abel Haggard and he is kind of caught in his past. He's full of memories, but he's lost people. And what's encroaching upon him, a theme throughout the book, is is a building. this Texas, is I mean, modernity, is kind of pushing in upon him. And I wonder if you could say a bit about that, because that seemed to me another sort of strong theme in the book, how the world was kind of pressing him out of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the geography of the book is another story of forgetting, in a way, you know. It's, it's such an American impulse, I, I think, that you know this idea that we... You know, it's sort of like the dream of the pilgrims in a way is that we can like, wash ourselves of our past. And if we build new cities for ourselves, we'll be sort of freed from what came before. And so I grew up in a town like this. It's like sort of the ultimate expression of that, that terrible American myth that we, can, that we can obliterate our past. You know, I, I grew up in you know, a brand new house in a brand new neighborhood where there's 10 designs and they're all repeated again and again. There was something there before. I mean, it, it wasn't that developed, but there were. You know, I grew up on the edge of a farm. There were old farmhouses everywhere, I and mean, and to make way for the suburban sprawl, they just raise all these places, and they they use eminent domain laws to force people out of their homes, as they do with Abel and the the book, and pave them over, and and build you know McMansion after McMansion. And there's a way in which, the way in which like the the idea of well, I guess a couple, uh, there's a couple of themes there, isn't there, that, well, you know, there's the idea of memory loss, that Alzheimer's in some way uh, performs something similar. It creates this new landscape for us that raises our
0: past. There, so there are two narrative strands by the old man and the young boy. But between those, you interleave narratives of a mythological land called Isidora can you say something about what that is and where that came from in your imagination
1: yeah isadora is this sort of land that the family created presumably hundreds of years before as this tradition that they've maintained over over their history and it's this imagined world this place that exists without memory and i think well i think in in one way in a simple way it sort of just came from my own family's experience we, you know my grandmother who Lived with us when she was dying of Alzheimer's, and my mother have always told me stories of sort of imagined worlds. I mean, Isadora wasn't the world we had; we had several other ones. But so, in in a way, I've I've thought of that as a really powerful way in which uh, our family identity is maintained. The other side of my family. Is Jewish actually, and I've also always kind of felt like Isadora, this tradition, this you know, this history of a text that's revised every generation and constantly returned to, is sort of a Torah metaphor. And actually, I think that the family in the book, you know, the way that they come from a single point of origin and they all share a genetic history, a shared genetic history, and they they the diaspora, and they share a text. Like all of this seems like very metaphorical for the Jews to me. And I, I it's something I didn't realize until after, after I had written it. Yeah. So Isadora, I think what it accomplishes. It's interesting. It, it's it's a way in which the characters in the book can address their fears or give themselves hope in ways they couldn't in you know like the rules the normal rules of reality. You know, they create this mythical landscape as yeah, as, as a way of working out something internal and, and um, which can only be expressed in this kind of um, elevated mythic way. And I think actually. It's, that's kind of what I do, you know. I, th- I think that I had the family do that because that's exactly what writing fiction is for me. Is it, because I can't explore or express or describe all the things I would like to in the musty rooms of reality. I, I I go into fiction and I create these like mythic this mythic milieu that allows me to describe these things. So Isadora for the characters in my book is very much like the book is for me.
0: And did I read somewhere that Isadora was the first part that you drafted in this book? It came first.
1: Yeah, Isadora, I. Wrote the first draft of those fables when I was 19. Actually, I was still in university. The name Isadora comes from Invisible Cities by Calvino. It's the, the second of his Invisible Cities is a place called Isadora. I wrote them. Yeah, I wrote them years ago, partially based. You know, I was reading a lot of Borges and Calvino, and just really in love with those writers at the time. And it was sort of a bit of an homage piece, I think, to those writers. But also, also, I was thinking a lot about my grandmother as I was writing them, and of you know stories she would tell me, or of stories my mother would tell me. You know, I, I was writing the book for for years. And it had fifteen hundred pages, and it took me a long time to find the story that I would, needed to tell, I suppose. And it was only at the very end when I started to understand that I started to think about those fables I had written years before and understand that in some way, I was kind of writing about the writing of them, which in a way is, I think I, I feel like that's sort of the psychic connection between everything I write is that, the next thing in in some deep way is always kind of about the thing that I wrote last or about the pr- production of the thing I wrote last so I don't know I think my work will continue to fold in on itself in that way.
0: And it seemed to me that the family bequeathed not only its, its genetic inheritance but also bequeathed stories and in a way the stories were the counterbalance of the of the genetic inheritance.
1: Absolutely yeah I mean you in know a, in a, that's a, a very good point that the inheritance of the gene is, is its own text and it's like an obliterating text. It's a text that, you know, makes you forget. And then the fact that there is like this other text that accompanies it, which are the stories, uh, you know, that they're a way in which memory is maintained in the family's history, even as it's, you know, the genetic text strips them of it.
0: And the book is is really a very positive book. I think the New York Times Review, you know, said it's surprising yeah. how much, positive content you can get out of a story which is potentially you know quite depressing I mean did you did you intend it to have quite a strong positive counterbalancing weight if you like to to what is a a, a, you know potentially terrible degenerative neurological disease I don't think that I, I
1: intend things that much as I write you know I think if it's uplifting and if it's fun or if it's you know whimsical or whatever it is it's only because that's my personality, I suppose. Like, I don't think... I mean, I may, and maybe it's not always my personality, obviously, but I think when I was looking at something so dark in my own, my own family's history that I had to kind of go into humor and to into whimsy try, and try to find reasons to hope, you know, and reasons to stay hopeful. I mean, I think, you know, humor and hope and any sort of uplifting message is almost always derived from deep sadness and deep fear. I mean that's that's where that stuff comes from. I, it you know I had to spend years inside of this book. Like I I think some readers have some potential readers have been hesitant to read a book about Alzheimer's because they they don't want to have to spend you know three or four days inside this like bleak world. Well, I didn't want to have to spend two years inside of it. So it's not it's not bleak at all. You know it's it I, I had to fill it with with um, things that entertained me and and reasons to laugh. You know and reasons to hope. Or else it would have just been unbearable. Mm.
0: I well, I think you succeeded brilliantly. Stefan
1: Van Block, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is great.